Please do join me in once again taking out your Bibles and turning to Luke chapter 5. You know, even though we live in a country that um, declared its independence, um, Christians cannot declare their independence from God. I mean, we try, uh, but we are dependent upon God. It's a, a declaration of dependence every day. So with that in mind, let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help, his assistance, as we spend time in his word. Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so would you be pleased to fill us with good and rich food so that we would be strengthened in the faith that you've given us. Father, indeed, our hearts do yearn for you. Um, we are hungry and thirsty. So, Father, please provide through your word and by your spirit what we need today. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unless you've been isolated from all news, all media, um, unless you've been just isolated by yourself for the last week, uh, you would have heard prayers for Damar, praying for Damar. And, and the fact that it took place here in Cincinnati during the Monday night football game, where not just the National Football League, but indeed the nation, it seems, is praying for this injured football player. Now, I was on a phone call with a friend uh, yesterday from out of state, and of course, he knows I'm from Cincinnati, so we ended up talking about that, and, and he asked an interesting question um, in light of this nationwide call to prayer. Do people know to whom they pray? Prayers for DeMar, praying for DeMar. Do people know to whom they pray? And my friend said, well, of course, some people know to whom they pray, but does everybody? Do they know who is at the end of their prayers? Do they know who is listening? Do they know who can act? Are they praying to an unknown God, kind of like what what the Apostle Paul addressed in Athens that we read about in Acts chapter 17? Um, or are they praying to a God who can be known and has made himself known? That is the true, the one true and living God who has revealed himself in creation, in the written word, and supremely in his word in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Well, here we are in Luke, one of the four Gospels, a, a witness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, in a word, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all want the reader to know Jesus. They are testimonies. They are narrative accounts of one man's life and ministry. You remember Luke has a purpose and a plan. He, he wants... To provide, he writes to provide certainty, not about everything, but supremely about the person and work of Jesus. He, he knows that his, his audience at the time, Theophilus, he's heard of Jesus, he's been taught about Jesus, but he wants 
to provide certainty of what he has been taught. A humble certainty, a humble sureness. And, he, and he's got a plan to do that, to write an orderly account, this narrative account that's, of course, historically accurate. It doesn't do any good if it's not accurate. That's thoroughly researched and that's well-organized to show who Jesus is and, and what Jesus came to do. And in chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as, as we're already discovering as we work our way through Luke, Jesus seeks and saves all kinds of people, lost in all kinds of ways. And for those of us familiar with the prodigal God that we're starting to look at, it's people lost in their badness and people lost in their goodness, both younger brothers and elder brothers, people lost in all kinds of ways. Luke wants his reader then and now to know for sure that Jesus is for real. Now today's text will help us get to know Jesus, not as we might imagine him to be, not as we may wish him to be, but rather as he's revealed, as he's made known through scripture. Last week, when we looked at verses 27 through 32 of chapter 5 in calling and complaining, we saw the calling of Levi, the tax collector, the spiritual outcast, the traitor, the collaborator with the Romans. We saw in response the complaining of the leaders when Levi hosted a feast in his house for Jesus, a dinner in which he invited fellow tax collectors and sinners to meet Jesus. And we also looked at the calling of Jesus, that twofold calling of Jesus where he says that he came to call sinners to repentance by calling people to follow me. Jesus then and Jesus now doesn't call people to follow a plan, a program, or even principles as good as they may be. Rather, Jesus calls people to follow a person. He calls people to follow him. Let's pick up where we left off by reading verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Well, here in our text, we're going to see a complaint answered by a claim followed by a call. Um, sometimes I, I, don't, I, I try to stay away from alliteration, but 
It helps me and I hope it helps you. We're going to see a complaint answered by a claim followed by a call. Well, the complaint, this another complaint we see in verse 33. Now, Jesus in these early days of his ministry has already run into conflict. He's already bearing the brunt of criticism. And here it's via a complaint. Um, Earlier in verse 30, it was due to a question, but here it's a statement. It's a statement, but it's, of course, an implied question. Now, Luke is narrating his gospel for his purposes, and he's organizing it. And, And if you notice how verse 33 starts, and they said to him, well, who's they? Well, you got to step back and see that the people are talking about the disciples of John and they're talking about the disciples of the Pharisees. So really the they is neither the disciples of John nor the disciples of the Pharisees nor the Pharisees. It's, it's the crowd. It's the crowd. It's not religious leaders. It's not John's disciples, but it's just the crowd that's around Jesus. We see this statement. The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. So what is fasting? What is fasting? Of course, going without for a time, in particular, without food. And the very name for that first meal that we eat in the morning, kids, what's it called? That we eat in the morning? What's it called? Breakfast, right? Break fast. You break the fast of the night in the morning. And fasting in the Old Testament was required. It was required by the law of Moses only on the Day of Atonement. We see that in Leviticus. There were fasts at various times and places and stages where there was a call to fast, but there was really just one required fast, that once a year recognition of God's deliverance from Egypt through the blood, the Day of Atonement. It's an expression generally of sorrow, primarily sorrow for sin. And yet we saw in Acts, when we went through Acts, there were a couple of times where the people, the church fasted for guidance. They, they, they were choosing another disciple. They were getting ready to send out people to church plant and they fasted. For John's disciples, there were fasting for repentance. And the Pharisees, ended up requiring two times a week to fast, Mondays and Thursdays. Forget about just once a year. That's not good enough. So the question, of course, is what does God require? Because in order, as it were, to keep the law of God, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, went beyond the law of God. And I think that's important for all of us who want to be faithful to God's word, to his scriptures, to recognize that going beyond Scripture is as equally dangerous as taking from Scripture. You see, as it were, subtraction and addition are both bad when it comes to Scripture. And I I think most of us tend to, to take away from or add to. But in bringing up fasting, Jesus is gonna highlight this going beyond Scripture. To insist on what God has not insisted on is to seek to outdo God with man-made traditions. 
Jesus is going to encounter the Pharisees over and over again and deal with man-made traditions as opposed to what God has revealed and what God requires. So what is the purpose of fasting? I mean, John's disciples fast primarily for repentance. The Pharisees' disciples are, are fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Why? Not so much as a means of self-improvement, but as a means of getting you close to God. Notice in the New Testament, when you fast, Jesus assumes you're going to fast and he doesn't want you to highlight and brag to others. When you fast, don't make it known that you're doing that. Fast in secret. So there are times, but interestingly, you don't see Jesus requiring it. You don't see the, the writers of the epistles requiring churches to fast. It's, as it were, voluntary. You know, the Old Testament critiques those who observe ritual fasting while rebelling against God. If you want to find that, go to Isaiah 58. It's a section about true fasting and false fasting. And God hates it when people are fasting outwardly, but they're rebelling against him inwardly. In the pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer writes this, about fasting, but I believe it applies to any other spiritual discipline. The Bible is not an end in itself, but means to bring us into an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God that we may enter into him, that we may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself. Again, this, this is a veiled complaint made against Jesus and his disciples. It's just an observation, but it's a complaint. Now, Jesus could have responded by going back to the scriptures and say, you know what? Only one annual fast is required. That's why you don't see us fasting often. And so it's okay if, if I and my disciples don't fast often, but rather we eat and drink often. But Jesus responds to this veiled complaint by making a claim, one that's astounding, one that's astonishing. So let's look at this astonishing claim beginning in verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus, in making a claim, he's going to paint a picture of a wedding. He's going to give an illustration, this joyful, festive occasion. And in that day, the wedding brought the community together. It lasted, the festivities lasted for several days, if not a week the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Before that, he says, while the bridegroom is here, the guests of the bridegroom celebrate. They eat and drink. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. Now, this is an utterly breathtaking and stagger, staggering claim. And if you, if you scour the Old Testament, you will see that there is a description of God as Israel's husband, as Israel's bridegroom. And so Jesus, in telling this story where he's focusing the attention on him, 
He's saying, I am God. I am here present with you. Now, it's a veiled claim to be sure. And over time, the disciples will start to see it and others will start to see it. But Jesus, in bringing up this bridegroom, knowing Israel's history, I am God, he is saying, here present with you. Now, it's a simple but revolutionary claim. And there are implications of Jesus' claim. Remember when we studied Ecclesiastes chapter 3, a time for everything, a season for everything. Jesus is saying, when I'm here, when I, the bridegroom, am here, you are to be joyful, not sad. In fact, to fast in Jesus' presence, he is saying, is as inappropriate as it is for wedding guests to mourn. And when he went on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. It's an indirect prediction of his death. If you look back at Isaiah 53, verse 8, you would see, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So most commentators see this time taken away as referring to his, his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial. But there's also an aspect that he's away until his return as well. Now, before we go on, there's another amazing claim. It's not just Jesus saying, I am the bridegroom. What? He's saying his followers, those who are seated at the table, those who are eating and drinking with him. They're like wedding guests, celebrating, enjoying their time with the bridegroom. It's the magnitude, again, of that celebration and that culture. I mean, the tent is put up, the food is out, the wine is out, the celebration, the probable dancing. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an event that brings people together and it's an event of joy and celebration and delight. You see, the guests at the wedding know that they are in with the bridegroom. They're his guests. They've been invited by him. They've not just been invited. They've not just responded positively to the RSVP, but they are welcomed into his presence. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There's a story in Exodus chapter 24 where Moses and the elders of Israel are, are receiving the law and, and Moses has to do some work with blood and he puts half of the blood on the altar and the other half in a basin and then it speaks of the blood of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. And, and when the elders of Israel came into the presence of God, they saw that they weren't destroyed but they were accepted. And you know what the scripture says they did? They ate and drank. They ate and drank. You see, I hope you read the something to think about quote, a meal with Jesus. And especially as we walk through Luke, we're going to see Jesus eating with all kinds of people, mainly sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the down and out. And there is this this 
eating and drinking, eating and drinking, eating and drinking throughout Luke. But notice it's also in all of Scripture. It's in the Old Testament. The elders ate and drank. Now, Jesus goes beyond painting a picture of this joy at a wedding feast by presenting a parable with two illustrations involving a couple of things that, you know what, are present at a wedding, clothing and wine. He's going to speak of what, no, of what no one does with new things. And when he speaks of what no one does, he's going to present a call. It's not direct, it's indirect, but it's a call nonetheless. And so join me as I pick up reading in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. If you were listening, there's new, 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 new. Something new has arrived, Jesus is saying. Someone new has come. These illustrations, again, are in the context of the occasion of a wedding, special clothes and good drinks. And there are two common sense illustrations about the incompatibility, the danger of mixing old and new. Now the implication is a new age, a new era has arrived, which changes the old practices. Jesus is not rejecting the old. He's not rejecting the old covenant, the old testament. After all, he's come, what, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What he's saying is that in him, the new that the Old Testament was looking forward to and which John in particular, John the Baptist, was heralding, has come. Making old practices no longer appropriate. Jesus is saying the new era of salvation has arrived and the mournful rites of the past are incompatible. The new era of salvation has arrived and it demands an appropriate and proper response. Now, I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 36, 37, and 39, we see no one, no one, no one. Jesus is going to speak now not know so much about right and wrong, although there is an aspect, but rather what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, what's common sense and what's, for lack of a better word, stupid. No one, we read in verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. What's he saying? Well, there's this illustration of a patched garment. Uh, there, there are certain things that shouldn't be mixed. You don't tear up a new cloth, a new garment to repair an old garment. It won't match. It'll look funny. But not only that is, it, it'll tear it. It's, it's, it's not compatible. It's not appropriate. Sure, you can do it. 
but it's not appropriate. No one does that. You see, it would be futile to try to combine this new fulfillment that Jesus brings with old man-made legalism. Look at verse 37 and 38 when we move from a new garment versus an old garment to new wine versus old wineskins or the illustration of new wine and old wineskins. You see, they, they used animal skins to hold wine. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin, it, br- it would be brittle and the expansion of the wine as it ferments, as it ages, it would burst the skin and you would lose both the skin and the new wine. And so no one would do that. It wouldn't be appropriate. Now you could do it, right? You could do it, but it's not appropriate, Jesus said. But what do we do with verse 39? What do we do? And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Well, it's most likely an ironic comment. It's, it's, it's looking ahead to the fact that there is going to be rejection. You see, there are going to be those that reject the new wine of the gospel and hold that the old ways were better. I mean, we heard in Advent, John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own, but his own failed to see the new covenant being enacted through the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, something new has arrived, Jesus saying, someone new has arrived. And thus, everything will change because someone has arrived, because I have arrived. Jesus is saying, if I come into your life, I will change everything. It's like where C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, I don't want a branch here and a part of you there. I want all of you. What Jesus is saying, not help with your old life, but he's giving you a new life, not a better you, but a new you. When he compares this, what you do with the new in view of the old, Jesus is saying in some ways, I'm not going to be your personal assistant. I'm not going to be your consultant. I'm not going to be added to you. You can't put me into old structures. I'm new. I'm the fulfillment of the promises. I think some people think that Jesus is an app. You know what I mean? Do y'all have the Jesus app on your smartphone, right? Jesus is saying, I'm not a new app. Okay, I'm actually a new operating system, right? I'm not actually a new operating system. I'm like new hardware. It's going to be new with me. I'm not going to be an app. I'm your new operating system. Jesus as the bridegroom is celebrating with the guest of the bridegroom. And it is a joyful occasion 
The psalmist says of God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And Jesus is saying, in my presence there is joy. In John 15 and 11 and John 16, 24, Jesus speaks of my joy in you that your joy may be full. That you may be joyful. Peter, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, you know the story of Peter. His fall, his restoration, his arrogance turned humility. In 1 Peter 1, he writes, Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Rejoice with joy. Rejoice with joy. I am the bridegroom. You are the guest of the bridegroom and we are together. And, it, and when I am with you, it's not sadness. It's not mourning. It's not somber. It's joy. Rejoice with joy. You see, in the presence of Jesus, whether Physically, as he's speaking, or as we've talked about in our series, the Holy Spirit, present with him now by his Spirit. In the presence of Jesus, it is not appropriate to fast. Rather, it is appropriate to feast. Well, let's come back around to the three images present in our text. The three images of the new life that Jesus gives, the consummation, as it were, of our salvation, looking forward to heaven. What's one? A wedding. A wedding. We read in Revelation, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's images of a garment, right? New cloth, old cloth. We look forward to We're clothed now in the righteousness of Christ by faith, but we will receive, if you read in Revelation, the symbolic picture of white garments. And oh, there's wine, wine flowing, new wine that over time becomes even better and better. We read in Isaiah 25, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. So how do we get a place at the table of this wedding reception, this wedding banquet? How do we get invited to come to that tent that's been put up The tables and chairs have been set out and the food and the wine is flowing. How do we get a place at that table? Well, we've got to be invited, right? We've got to be invited to join in the celebration. And as if there is anything clear in the scriptures, anything clear in the New New Testament is that Jesus invites people. He invites people to follow him. In Luke in particular, it will be the outcast, the down and out. He invites all kinds of people to follow him. 
But you know what? We've also got to be dressed for the occasion, right? We've got to be dressed for the occasion. How, how do we get invited to that table at that wedding banquet that Isaiah looks forward to? Well, we got to be in the right clothes, don't we? The wedding clothes. You see, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. His clothes were taken off of him and divided and sold so that we would have the garments that we need to wear to this banquet. And how do we get to drink the new wine? How do we get to drink that wine that will become the aged wine, the wine well refined? Well, how? It's because Jesus drank the bitter wine of God's wrath. Jesus tasted the vinegar, literally. Jesus figuratively, spiritually tasted the wrath, the wine of God's wrath. God, if this cup, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, let it pass. No, he drank it to the dregs for us. He drank the bitter wine of God's wrath so that we could get the sweet wine of his favor. My friends, here's the last question. How do we get to feast? How do we get to feast? We get to feast because Jesus kept the fast. What do I mean by that? Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 58. True and false fasting. Again, God through Isaiah has some hard things to say to people who outwardly fast, but their hearts are rebelling against God, who are fasting for show, but they're not interested in getting close to God. But we pick up reading in Isaiah 58, verses six and seven. Is, this, is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see, him, see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That's the ministry of Jesus. Remember when he announced by reading in the synagogue of his calling, his mission to free the oppressed, to set at liberty? Remember that? See, we can feast because Jesus fasted for us. If anyone is in Christ, the apostle Paul writes, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God is with us and for us in Christ. And in Christ, what is God doing? He's making all things new. My friends, we've all been invited to the feast that is here in part, the already. That's why even in a sinful and fallen world where things don't work right, Gathering for worship can be joyful. The Lord's Supper can be joyful. Downstairs at the end of the month in the fellowship hall around the table can be joyful. 
But those feasts look forward to that great feast that awaits, that will one day come in its fullness. My friends, through faith in Christ, by seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith, by hearing him through the ears of faith, we can rejoice now. And we will rejoice forever. Rejoice, the new has come. Rejoice, Jesus has come. Heavenly Father, indeed, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Father, we thank you for this illustration that Luke preserves that Jesus gave of weddings and garments and wines. Father, help us to live wisely, to live appropriately in this new era, this this time when salvation has come. Oh, Father, we do yearn and long for Redemption's Day to come completely. Until then, Father, would you help us, strengthen us, guide us as we walk by faith and not by sight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, response today is one that's very fitting.